Amen. So today marks the third message in our Lenten series. And as we've said, the intention behind this series, turning to a psalm as intense as Psalm 51, is to bring meaning in our journey toward Easter Sunday. By plumbing the depths of our sinful condition, we're preparing ourselves for the joy of resurrection. And coincidentally, that joy is the subject of this morning's message. It seems, however, that without our movement downward, without plumbing the depths of our sinful condition, our movement upward, our celebration of the work of Jesus Christ, um, would be a superficial one. That is, without pressing into this season of preparation, our joy in Christ's victory would be a cheap joy. It would be, in a word, sentimental. The novelist Flannery O'Connor captures the idea well. She says, We lost our innocence in the fall, and our return to it is through the redemption which was brought about by Christ's death, and by our slow participation in it. She then says, Sentimentality is a skipping of this process in its concrete reality, and an early arrival at a mock state of innocence, which strongly suggests its opposite. Sentimentality, in other words, skips straight to the good part without the hard, agonizing journey to get there. And as a result, the good part loses its appeal. The process was cheap, and therefore, the reward too. The temptation then to gloss over our slow participation in redemption is one that must be resisted. Otherwise, our joy in what Christ has done on our behalf will be sentimental, and we're still, we will be sentimental, knowing only a Hallmark-esque pleasantness, but not the Lord's abiding joy. And so in taking the uh, road less traveled, Although it's uncomfortable and not always uplifting, it yields in the end great rejoicing. The valley is deeper, yes, but the mountain is higher also. And so there's the idea. Easter Sunday is so sweet because Good Friday and Holy Saturday are so bitter. And it's the same way with us. Right, the knowledge that Christ has not simply made small renovations to my otherwise flawless character, but fundamentally resurrected a dead man from the grave, evokes from me the highest praise and the deepest gratitude. In Luke chapter 7, as Jesus is dealing with Simon the Pharisee and the prostitute who falls at his feet, he forgives her. Simon scandalized, so on and so forth. But Jesus sums up his teaching and he says, He who has been forgiven little, loves little. But he who's been forgiven much, loves much. And so our journey into the depths, therefore, is not so that we might stay there, not to wallow in our sin, but that we might rise higher. That knowing how much we've been forgiven, we might also, in return, love much. And so today, our attention will be directed toward a cluster of verses or a cluster of requests that the king makes uh, for a return to joy 
in his life. He says, verse 8, Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Verse 14, Deliver me, O God, then my tongue will joyfully sing. And then lastly, verse 15, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Now, it might seem a redundant point, but it's important to identify where the king's sorrow stems from. Clearly, he's in a state of sorrow, asking for this joy to return to his life. It's not merely a sorrow that things have gone wrong, that he has been caught for what he's done, but it's a sorrow that arises from his relationship to the Lord. It's instructive that David's plea for joy and gladness comes couched between even greater pleas that his sin would be removed. Look at verses 7 and 9. He says, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. So he pleads, Make me to hear joy and gladness. But surrounding that request are many more Uh, even more intense, please. He says, purify me, wash me, blot out all my iniquities. And that tells us that the king's request for joy and gladness is not something different than his request for the removal of his sin. They are, it seems, two sides of the same coin. Joy and gladness is the fruit of forgiveness, and forgiveness is the root of joy and gladness. But this tells us another thing, however, and it's that if forgiveness is the root of one's joy, then sin is the root of one's despair. Sin, quite simply, is an acid that eats away at one's happiness. But it's not sin in general that does this, right? And that's important for us to understand. It's much more that our sin is subject to God's scrutiny. Again, consider David's plea. He says, hide your face from my sins. His wrongdoing, in other words, was set before God's countenance. It was exposed to his holiness. And it's this, as opposed to a mere sadness that things have gone wrong, that saps the king's joy, that seems to be taking everything good from him. It's because one's joy is simply the Lord. In your presence is the fullness of joy, Psalm 16. And when the Lord's displeasure is turned against our sin, there can be no joy. Take, for example, a few lines from the uh, penitential Psalms. Psalm 32, one we've referenced a few times in this series, verses 3 and 4 says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My my vitality was drained away with the fever heat of summer. The phrase, washed away, more accurately means something like to be worn out. The older translations convey this better. They read, waxed old. And then he adds to that, my vitality has been drained away. And so if you can remember back to our first message in the series, that expression 
means literally juices. My juices have been drained away. David's speaking of how his, the, the sweetness and the tenderness of his life had been scorched and dried up because of his sin. And so the idea presented to us is that sin has eaten away and withered the king's very being, as if all the color were drained from his life. But again, it's not merely sin that does this. It's primarily God's displeasure with sin. David says, your hand was heavy upon me. And our modern idiom, heavy-handed, retains much the same meaning. To be strict and severe. It was God's heavy-handedness that brought David low. Again, Psalm 38, verse 3. It says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. The weak and sickly state that the king finds himself is attributed to the dual causes of, on one hand, God's indignation, on the other hand, his sin. And as is the case with Hebrew poetry, the parallelism indicates equivalency. God's indignation, his righteous anger against our sin, is simply to allow sin to fester and to ravage. The punishment of sin is that it's permitted to remain, that it's not covered up. Again, it is this, one, that one's sin is not put away, that it's exposed to God's sight, that corrodes and eats away at our joy. I think the clearest example of this is in Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is a psalm of Moses. You guys know the wilderness generation, and how much they struggled to obey the Lord in the wilderness. Reflecting on that time, most think probably somewhere near the end of that time, Moses says, For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury, we have finished our years like a sigh. And so rather than the people's sin being covered and removed from memory, the Lord places it before him. Our secret sins, the psalmist says, in the light of your presence. And this is what causes our decline. We have finished our years like a sigh, he writes. It's as if God's holy and lasting gaze penetrates to the depths of our being. And subject to the heat of the Creator's displeasure, the creature begins to wither away. Consider the psalmist plea, Psalm 39, verses 11 and 13. With reproofs you chasten a man for iniquity, you consume as a moth what is precious to him. Then he says, Turn your gaze away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. It's as if God's pleasure is too much to bear. And he says, Lord, just stop looking at me. Leave me alone. It's too much. So God's righteous judgment in regards to our sin then is to keep it before him. It's not the sin that burns away in his presence, but it's our joy and gladness. The wages of sin, we're told, is death. And there is a certain type of inward death that one reaps in their sin. And so here's a depressing reality. 
I'm only here to encourage you today. Um, inevitably, this will come upon us. That's, that's just the way it is. Sooner or later, one will find their sin subject to God's displeasure. Right? As much as it's been atoned for and, and clean, that doesn't mean you're subject to wrath. Romans 8, there is therefore no condemnation, but you're subject to God's fatherly displeasure. So we'll find ourselves in a similar situation. So the question is not if it will happen, but when it does, how are we going to handle it? Right? How do we respond when it seems that all our joy has dissipated because of our own failure? Now, Augustine, in his sermon on this psalm, uh, I think he provides a really good answer. He says, when chastening makes us weak, there is a kind of strength that would be a fault. It would be, rather, he says, it was by a kind of strength that man offended, so as to require to be corrected by weakness. For it was by a certain pride that he offended, so as to require to be chastened by, hu- by humility. So Augustine points out the correct response to the Lord's chastening. Not to resist it by a kind of strength, but to humbly accept it. Or as the prophets say, to bear it. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, the prophet Micah says. And Jeremiah in Lamentations writes, It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. The proper response to the Lord's chastening then is to shoulder it. Not with a stiff upper lip and all the grit that one can muster, but instead, as James says, to let one's laughter be turned to mourning and one's joy to gloom. One bears the Lord's indignation, not by putting on a good face and suppressing it, but by allowing it to make its proper impression on them. And I understand, right, the unpopularity of that prescription. That's a bitter pill, undoubtedly. But it seems it's the only proper response to the gravity of sin. And not only that, it's a necessary part of repentance. First and Second Corinthians are very um, instructive on this point. Uh, you guys know in First Corinthians 5, there was some ridiculous sin that was happening within the congregation. Uh, worse sin that was even tolerated in the world. And so Paul says to them, uh, why are you boasting? You should be sorrowful. And anyway, he brings them to this point of sorrow and repentance for their sin. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, he writes, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of the wrong. So this godly sorrow, bearing one's sin, allowing God's displeasure to make its impression on our hearts, produces repentance, the Apostle Paul tells us. It's not a product of one's repentance, but the source of it. And when godly sorrow has completed its work in the heart, it produces, as with the Corinthians, vindication, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, 
and avenging. In other words, godly sorrow purges out pride and boastfulness, the very things that caused us to fall in the first place, and introduces humility. It's right for us to go through this process of internal mourning for our sin. And when it happens, right, it creates the necessary conditions for repentance. So David is our example of this. After his great sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, there's a strange story in 2 Samuel 16 that tells of David being cursed by a man named Shimei. Shimei, it says, hounded the king wherever he went, saying to him, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. Everybody knew what had happened with David, and Shimei came to let him know. And in response to this, Abibashai, uh, the king's right-hand man, demanded, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. He's quite the, <laughs> quite the guy. And the king's response is telling. Right? Here's the king, the king of Israel, being cursed and mocked by this dead dog. Here's what the king says. He says, let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. And the story concludes by saying, So David and his men went out, of the way, went out on the way, and Shimei went along the hillside parallel with him. And as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at him. It's a picture of someone who's resigned themselves to the Lord's displeasure. Not in a way that's complete despair, not in a way that's hopeless, but in a way that you're bearing the Lord's indignation. There are no longer protests or objections coming from his mouth. He simply bears it and accepts it as from the Lord. And so although this situation probably has no parallel in our lives, it's instructive on how to respond to God's indignation. We've gone astray by pride and strength. Our correction, therefore, comes by humility and weakness. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. But alongside bearing the Lord's indignation also belongs waiting upon the Lord's loving kindness. These two things are very similar to one another and almost the same thing. One patiently bears the consequence of their sin, but all the while waiting for the Lord to come and remove that sin. Bearing one's sin while waiting for its removal is expressed in the king's words. He says, let the bones which you have broken rejoice. He says, hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquity. He pleads for his sin that is before the Lord's face to be removed. He's saying, in other words, allow your indignation to give way to your loving kindness. Allow the anger to pass and take my sin and put it away. Now, interestingly enough, this same pattern is expressed in the Psalms that we already surveyed. It seems that bearing one's sin while patiently waiting for grace is a universal pattern of repentance. Earlier, the psalmist mourned in Psalm 90, you have placed our iniquities before you. And now he pleads, Psalm 90 verse 14, O satisfy, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and gladness all our days. 
It's been rough, he's saying. We, we, Lord, we've blown it. But put away our sin. Grant us your loving kindness that we might have joy once again. Psalm 85 demonstrates this very same pattern. The psalmist says, Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you. Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. That very same pattern. Again, the request is for the Lord's anger to be displaced by his loving kindness. Under his anger, the people languish. There is no joy, but they look for, they hope for, better days to come when rejoicing will be on their lips once more. But this can't be missed. One's waiting is an expression of confidence. One's waiting is an expression of confidence. In other, in other words, because one trusts, better knows that the Lord will be gracious, they don't have to take matters into their own hands. One does not have to be the cause of their own salvation, the means of their own redemption, when they are assured that there is abundant redemption in the Lord. Though he may be angry with us, the scriptures say, it's but for a moment. Rather, his favor, rather, is for a lifetime. Or, as the Lord himself says in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 8, In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you. And so one can bear their sin and just face it honestly, because they know there's a promise on the back end, that God will forgive. Anger is for a moment. This season is for a moment. Accept it, face it, because it's not going to be forever. God will usher in everlasting kindness. So, in relation to this theme, waiting, consider Psalm 130, verses 5 and 8. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in His word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than the watchman for the morning, indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So you see, because there is loving kindness and abundant redemption with the Lord, because he will redeem us from our iniquities, we wait. We look to him more than the watchman looks to the rising sun, more than the nursing child looks to their mother. Waiting, therefore, is an expression of our confidence. Waiting on the Lord to bring His loving kindness and to bring us into righteousness. And the reward of one's waiting is deliverance. If you wait upon the Lord, He will deliver you, and when He delivers you, with it will come joy. One primary way joy is presented to us in the scriptures is, the, is as the consequence of God's mighty deeds. It's a state, yes, a fruit of the Spirit, yet it's also a response to what God has done on our behalf. The king, crushed by despair, prays, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, then my tongue will sing joyfully of your righteousness. Save me, deliver me, then when you do, 
I'm going to sing again. I'm going to be full of joy again. And so his joy is the product of the Lord's salvation. The offense is removed. The cause of despair, his own sin, is eliminated. And the king's lips are opened to praise once more. There's no longer indignation. There's no longer wrath. But there's loving kindness, tender mercy that's given to him. So here's the point, right, for us. This joy ought to never be far from us. Why? Because our sin has already been forgiven. Whereas the king looked forward to a time when his sin would be blotted out, we look backward to a time when it was accomplished. It is finished, our Lord said, as he poured out his life on the cross. The deliverance that the king sought, that he might praise the Lord once again, has been brought about. The the decisive moment happened some two odd thousand years ago. And that is, after all, why we call it good news. Right? It's not good instruction. It's not good anything else. It's good news. It's happened. It's done. And now, for us, the only thing is to respond to the good news that's been accomplished without us, for us, before we even had committed a sin. And so, though it's good and proper to mourn one's sin, It ought not to crush them, because the Lord has forgiven, the Lord has cleansed, the Lord has reconciled. So no matter one's miserable state, joy, joy is never far away. Joy in the Lord's salvation. And so this leads us to the last point I want to make. And really, everything's building to this, to make one very simple point. That the central thing is, the restoration of one's joy. Hear the king's prayer again. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. There is no idea here that a new thing is needed. Some new initiative. Some fresh interpretation of scripture or something novel and exciting to kickstart our lives. There's not a hint of that but instead a a return to the beginning. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Now I know that sounds quite mundane and obvious, but there is no other way. And we often get fooled by its simplicity. Inevitably due to our sin or some other cause, we often find ourselves in seasons of dryness and scarcity. And our, refer, and our first reaction to those moments is usually to look for something new. I think we've all kind of experienced this in our own life, looking for maybe a new church, looking for uh, better preaching, looking for something else entirely. But we need something new, right, to kickstart our lives. And maybe for a moment or two we get that new thing and it seems to do the trick, right? Exciting new word that we're hearing or whatever it may be, a bit of refreshing and freshness is interjected back into our discipleship. But what happens is that inevitably the hollowness begins to creep back in, right? There's a sense of, 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 of lack that comes up once again. And so we're tricked into thinking that new automatically equals better, that novelty is equivalent to uh, restoration. But the solution is not there. 
Rather, the scriptures counsel to us, and I think, I mean, this is, it couldn't be more practical, is not to clamor after something new, but to return to the origin. Listen to me, the prophet says, look to the rock from which you were hewn, to the quarry from which you were dug. The answer that you're looking for is not in the addition of something new that you've never had, but the restoration of something that you've had and lost. And what is it that's been lost? What does David say? The joy of salvation. That's where he went wrong. Why did, why did David sin in the first place? Because he lost the joy of his, of his salvation. His eyes were off the Lord. His eyes, he, the, the joy was gone and therefore his eyes were looking elsewhere. And so we need to, in other words, return to the well from which our joy is drawn. And that is nothing other than the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where we need to return. The one thing that is necessary for us is to be gripped again, not by something new, but by the sheer wonder that Christ has loved us and gave himself for us. Have we forgotten? Have we forgotten what Christ has done on our behalf? And it's not that the gospel has grown old. It's not that somehow that message is boring and we need to move beyond it now. It's not the gospel that's grown old, but it's our hearts that have grown old. Listen to G.K. Chesterton, what he says on this matter. It's a little bit longer of a quote, but hang with me. He says, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. He says, it is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. Every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that God makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has an eternal appetite for infancy. And then he says this, For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. And that resonates. We have sinned and grown old, and our hearts therefore are no longer capable of rejoicing in the same truth, that same gospel message. The well-worn and familiar message, Jesus Christ died for sin, wearies us. Something new. Tell me, I want to hear something else. Like a child always saying, do it again. It wearies us. And so we need, as Chesterton indicates, to become like children again. To have a spirit that's fierce and free, capable of delighting in the same thing again and again and again. How strange, he says, our Father is younger than we. And so may our Father, who is younger than we, come to us and make our hearts young again. Cause us to hear again, O Lord. Speak the wonder of your forgiveness to our stony hearts. Open our lips that our mouths might declare your praise.
Let's pray.